Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, as we undertake this wonderful challenge and opportunity to study your word from beginning to end, Lord, we pray you bless us as we study. We ask for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears. Help us to understand the things beyond just the natural things that we can see. That we can see, Lord, as it were, in colour as we look at your word. Father, excite us, we pray. And Lord, your word tells us itself that it is living and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide between that which is spiritual and that which is fleshly. That which is of God and that which is of our own thoughts and opinions. Well, Lord, we live in a world where there are many opinions. But Father, we want to know what you think. We want to know what you've said. So Lord, as we begin this journey, Father, be with us every step. Guide us, lead us, and teach us, we pray, that we may understand more of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest journey in the world. And that's exactly what it's going to be. As we go through from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right the way through to the end of Revelation chapter 22, where we'll read of a new heavens and a new earth and an eternity with God. It's a little bit like standing on top of a tall mountain. A few years ago, I had the opportunity of going to North Wales and uh, me and a few of us, we climbed to the top of Snowdon and... Um, it's not that tall a mountain in the scheme of things, but uh, it still required a bit of effort. We did feel rather um, puny and weak when a lady who must have been, no word of a lie, in her 70s came running past us up the mountain. And other people were cycling past us up the mountain, and we were out of breath walking up the mountain. But we got to the top, and when you get to the top, you can look and you see this wonderful panorama of all that's there. And... Genesis is a little bit like that. As we kind of stand at this point, we can look out and we see all the scripture laid out before us. Genesis is an incredible book. We'll talk more in just a moment. But we're covering a huge amount of history in the book of Genesis as we start our our journey through the Bible. So Genesis here uh, is covering somewhere around about... Um, somewhat, not, not far off 2,000, uh, two and a half thousand years of history, uh, as recorded in the Bible from the creation of the world up to the time of the, uh, uh, the children of Israel going down into Egypt with Joseph and the family. Uh, that's the period that Genesis covers. The rest of the Old Testament, comparatively, doesn't cover that much of a, a span of history. Um, and then we have a, a kind of a gap which we'll deal with when we get to uh, the book of Daniel. That's all recorded, actually. It's not a, some people talk about the silent years. It's not silent at all. We'll look at that. And then the New Testament. Uh, all the New Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament, all uh, condensed into a very short time span. All of that comprises the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. It's not man's views and opinions. It's God's Word. The book of Genesis, um, we see, covers a whole variety of subjects, but looking at the beginning of everything, the beginning of creation, the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of the Sabbath, and all that that means, marriage, home, childhood, sin and murder, sacrifice, grace, trade, agriculture, city life, races, language, a chosen people, all of those things are included in the book of Genesis. It's a very complete book. 
The book of Genesis anticipates all false philosophies also. Atheism is countered by the fact that God created. There was a God. A God was there in the beginning, before time. God is outside of time. And the idea of pantheism, God being part of the, the created world. People talk about Mother Nature and so on. But God is transcendent. He's outside of time, outside of this realm of things. Polytheism, the idea that there's many gods, or the Bible reveals there is just one God revealed through Father, Son, and Spirit. Materialism is dealt uh, within the fact that matter had a beginning. You know, everything is going to decay. All the things that we can acquire and build up through our lifetime, it won't last. I'm reminded of this every time Joy tells me we need to go and buy some new boots. And I think, didn't we buy some not too long ago? Um, things wear out. Everything wears out. Humanism. The idea that, that, that God is, is kind of man, that we can become God or we rule our own destiny. And of course, the Bible reveals that there's actually God and not man that is the ultimate reality. The idea of evolution, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning, is countered by the fact that we're told that God created. Evolution is nonsense. And we'll talk as we go through. People get very upset because we've been brought up in a culture and an environment where we are so indoctrinated with this evolutionary mindset. The government of this country has made a decision to start teaching next September primary school children evolution as part of what they call a fact-based science program. I've personally had a debate with Michael Gove. I've asked him to provide me one piece of evidence that warrants teaching evolution as part of science. His answer? They have no evidence, but they're going to do it anyway. And then we're going to find that this whole idea of uniformitarianism, that everything stays the same. We're going to see very much uh, dealt with in Genesis as we see that not everything has always been the same. There's been some great changes uh, through the history of the world. We're going to find the major doctrines that we read about through the rest of the Bible are all founded in Genesis. Uh, that God elects, the idea of sovereign election, salvation, justification by faith, not by works. Our security, believer's security, separation, uh, disciplinary chastisement, divine incarnation, that God became a human in the person of Jesus. The rapture of the church, death and resurrection. The priesthood, that, that's the, the ironic Aaron's priesthood. Also, this interesting character that we'll meet, we'll look at in the next session, Melchizedek, the Antichrist. And also this Palestinian covenant. Uh, note today, because obviously it's all news, because Ariel Sharon has died, and there's lots of talk about the whole Palestinian covenant and things like that. Well, all these things have their roots in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a very relevant book. In Psalm 11, verse 3, it says that if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's interesting when you look at the number of attacks there are on the book of Genesis. People try and discredit Genesis. Well, Genesis has withstood all the attacks of the, the critics' hammers, and uh, they've got worn out, but uh, it still stands. There was a, a major national poll. Uh, it was actually in America, but it's clearly showed that many have left the church because they no longer believe the Bible is the absolute word of God. And one of the reasons for that is because people have been told and taught to doubt the book of Genesis. It's just fiction. It's just a story. It's just an account. It's illustrating something. This is what people are told. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 8 to 9, it says that all the words of my mouth are in righteousness. This is God speaking. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are plain to him 
that understands and writes to them that find knowledge. The two words are highlighted there. Nothing froward. Uh, nothing twisted. You know, God hasn't put anything in his word to confuse us. There's no uh, intentional deceit in there. Everything's clear. Everything's plain. And I love that the, the, the words of God are plain. It's there for us to understand. Some people approach the Bible, oh, I don't understand the Bible. Why not? Read. It's there. We're going to go through and we'll see just how wonderful the Bible really is as we go through. So, the opening sentence of the Bible, an incredible sentence, and we could spend weeks studying just this opening sentence. We're not, but we, we could. There is so much here. That's the, uh, the Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew reads from right to left. What we have there... Uh, is the opening word, Barashit, which is in the beginning, so which is why we have in the beginning. And then Bara, created out of nothing. You see, the world has its own views and ideas, but where does matter come from? How do they get matter? And they keep going back, and we have this very small dot, and everything was compressed in it, but where did it come from? God creates out of nothing. There's other Hebrew words, there's another word, Asa, which we'll find is used to make, to fashion. And there's a yatsa, which is to form. But the word that's used in Genesis is this creating out of nothing. And then we find Elohim, the third word in the Bible. And it's a plural word. It's the name of God. But it's a plural. It's not a singular. You will find we talk about cherubim and the I am ending in the Hebrew denotes that it's plural. So God introduces himself in the opening verse of the Bible in this plurality. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit revealed to us there. We've mentioned that there's Christ on every page in previous studies. Every, every page of the Bible you can look at, you'll find some reference to Jesus. Psalm 40, Jesus is recorded there. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. A Bible study last Thursday night, we found at least a dozen examples of that in just the first three chapters of Genesis. Every page of the Bible, there's something that specifically points to Jesus Christ. One example here, if you look at the opening text, we have this Barashit, Bara, Elohim. And then there's two words in the Hebrew that are untranslated. It's uh, an Aleph, which is the first letter of their alphabet, and a Tau. That's the last letter of their alphabet. If we were to put that into Greek, which we'd be familiar with, it would be Alpha and Omega. Or in English, it would be the A and the Z. So if we were to read that, it would be, in the beginning, God, the Alpha and the Omega, created the heavens and the earth. On the opening page of the Bible, God is there. Jesus is there on every page. And there's so many examples we see. Let's um, look at this. First uh, four verses we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. I wanted to show you another example of Jesus being right in all of these details. Now if we look at this whole issue with light, we've got it translated in verse 3. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And we understand that in the context. But if we look at the... Hebrew again, uh, this is again Hebrew reading from right to left. It's interesting what we see. If you look at the word, effectively, if we were to transliterate it, so literally uh, translating each word, we've got said Elohim, being God, 
Be light, be light. If you look at these Hebrew words, you recognize that that's, even though you don't need to know Hebrew, you can see that's the same shape as that. You've got a, 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 a conjunctive just joining it together. But this word here and this word here, both words for light, are in the Hebrew. So we can see, even just by looking at the patterns of the letters, we've got a sentence that says, um, said God, be light, be light. Now, there's no problem with our translation, but another way that this can be translated legitimately is God said, let the light illuminate. And that's what I believe this is telling us. That the light was already there. See, for the light to illuminate, it had to be pre-existent. It already existed. It now just illuminated. And it's interesting, when we look at some of the verses in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now, even that, in the context of that, it means that the light must have already existed. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 45, 7, there's an interesting verse. It says, God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, the word we have for create there in creating darkness is bara. It's creating out of nothing. It's the same word we had when God created the heavens and the earth. But the word that we have for form, if you remember I mentioned in Hebrew they have a number of different words, whereas in the English often we have just a single. For form there, there's the word yatsa, to mould into a form, to make it a fashion, uh, just very much like a potter would, would do. So for, God says, I form the light. The light was there, he's putting into a, a pattern or a form. But darkness comes out of nothing. You see, darkness actually, in and of itself, doesn't exist. Darkness is the absence of light. There's no measurement for darkness. We have measurements for light. We can measure in terms of photons, the smallest unit of light we can get. But there's no measurement for darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. It's because light exists that we have darkness. And it's interesting because the rest of that verse says, I make peace and create evil. Same idea, that evil only exists because of the very nature of God and his goodness, there is the possibility then of evil. So some people get confused, why, why is it saying that God creates evil? Well, evil exists because of God's goodness, just as darkness exists because of light. John chapter 8 verse 12 says, Then spoke Jesus again and unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Again, Jesus himself declaring he's the light. First John 1 John 1.5 This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we see all these little references. See, light was pre-existent in the person of Jesus Christ. God commands the light to shine. And the light simply then illuminated. Jesus Christ, the pre-existent one, who is the light, created all things. As I said, light was pre-existent in the person of Jesus. There's a very interesting aside, and we're not going to go into lots of physics and all sorts of things, but this is just so fascinating, it's worth sharing. We're told that every particle has an antiparticle. Okay, and what we're told is that if a particle and an antiparticle collide, they annihilate each other, they cancel each other out, but they produce a photon, or a, the smallest unit of light possible. Now, 
What's interesting is that physicists have suggested that this is a reversible reaction. So the implication here is that if you have a particle and an antiparticle, they collide and produce a photon, but that that reaction is reversible if you start with a photon, potentially likely to have created matter. That's a discovery that science is making and trying to understand. And what is it that the Bible tells us? That in the beginning, God, the person of Jesus Christ, was there and created all things. Light created everything, according to what the Bible teaches. Science is starting to see the same thing. Fascinating. We'll go through briefly Creation Week. We just talked about the light on the first day, the stretching of space. Some people have problems with these things, but the Bible speaks lots about heavens. The heavens being stretched out, an expanding universe, as it were. There's land, vegetation on the third day. On the fourth day, we're going to see the sun, the moon, and the stars. The fifth day, sea animals and birds. And then on the sixth day, God creates the land animals and man. Now, some people have a real issue on the six days. Did God really create in six literal days? I mean, some people say, you know, well, science surely has proved, and we have that word so often banded around without often any context. Well, you see, the answer to that question actually is a measure of your maturity as a believer. There are people that say, well, it doesn't matter. It does. There are people that say, well, God used time periods. Well, that doesn't work. And there are people that say, well, it was just a story. Well, that doesn't work either, and we'll show you why. You see, the question really is, do you trust God's word or man's opinion? Recently, I had a knock at the door on a Saturday morning, and it was two Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said to them, one of the problems I have with what you believe is that you don't trust the Bible. You trust man's interpretation or man's teaching. And they said, oh, no, 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 we trust the Bible. And I said, well, let's have a look, shall we? When you look at what the Bible says, the Bible says God created in six days. And they said, oh, no, we don't believe that. We believe that God used time frames, time periods. I said, well, where did you get that from? Show me that verse in the Bible. And straight away they had to conclude that they were trusting man's interpretation, not what the Bible itself said. You see, why couldn't God have created it in six days? I mean, the question really is, why did it take so long? I mean, this is a God who can do anything. And it actually turns out there's a very good reason why God did it in the time he did. What does God say? Well, before we look at the scripture, let me just read this to you by Tozer. He says, Let a man question the inspiration of scriptures, and a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter he judges the word instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, amends, strikes out, adds to his pleasure, but always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. You see, either you'll sit there and you will judge what the Bible says and you'll decide what you do and don't want to accept, or you'll come to that place of saying, well, I believe the Bible is God's word, and then allow it to teach you and instruct you. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, very familiar portion of scripture. We're told there, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh. Now, in the context of this, God is saying to the children of Israel, I've given you a working week. The reason you've got six days to work and rest on the seventh is because I did it that way. The reason I did it that way is because I wanted to give you a pattern. That's why God did it in six days and rest on the seventh. It's very simple, really. In Exodus 31, 
It's reiterated again, you see highlighted there in red. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And notice what we're told at the bottom here. This is on the Ten Commandments. These two tables of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Do you know it's impossible for God to lie? Hebrews 6 verse 18 tells us that. God writes in his own finger that he created everything in six days. So whether we understand it or not, the Bible tells us that's the way it is. Actually, the more you look into it, the less of a problem that becomes. The more comfortable you become with real science as opposed to pseudoscience that is often propagated by evolutionists, the more these things really do make sense. So, let's jump in. We've looked at those first few verses already. Let's just look at verse 5 again. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now that's how it's translated. Nothing wrong with that. But it's literally the construction of the Hebrew. It's day one. It's the very first day. There's no days before this. This is the very first day. This is our building block. It's from this point that we can go on and start to talk about a second day because we now have our first day. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. So God is separating waters above and waters underneath. Verse 8, we go on. And God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called his seas. And God saw that it was good. I think there's more to that than just God's pleased with what he's done. There's a very interesting pamphlet produced by uh, the creation science movement down here in Portsmouth. We read there that God gathered the waters into one place. So we have one land mass and then sea. So originally the earth was one block of land according to the Bible. One of the people that uh, has contributed to this, uh, for us, sorry, the creation science movement, has, from their study, concluded that the earth originally may well have been in the shape of a flower. With Jerusalem as it would have been, right at the centre, looking at the land masses as they are today. People say today, you know, do you think the land masses were once connected? They still are. There's just water in between, but they're still connected. But they've got pushed apart by different things uh, going on. We'll talk more about that next time. In the book of Revelation, there's a very interesting scripture. This is right at the end. We'll get there as we get to the end of the year. There were voices of thunders, lightnings. There was a great earthquake such as there was not since men were on the earth. That's a big earthquake. So a mighty earthquake and so great. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Now, if every island flees away, there are no more islands, what will you be left with? One landmass. In the book of Acts, it talks about a time of restitution of all things. All things being put back as they were is the implication. And according to Genesis, we started with one landmass. And according to Revelation, it's going to go back that way. Very interesting. We're also told that God is part of this work, this, this creation. said, let the dry land appear. And it was so. How long do you think that took to happen? I think God speaks that. Well, of course, geologists and you know, evolutionists will tell us it was millions of years that the earth cooled and gradually, you know, so on. They, they argue that the earth came from the sun, possibly, or from some other object in the, the heavens. Uh, and it was this molten blob that gradually cooled down over millions of years. Scientifically impossible, and provably so. If you have Alka-Seltzers, you know those little tablets, you drop them in, 
um, water, and all of a sudden they start fizzing, don't they? And other, other things as well uh, that do the same. If you were to freeze that instantly, which I guess at the moment you need to go to America and enjoy this uh, polar storm thing they've got going on, but if you could just freeze that instantly, then you'd have those bubbles frozen. But you'd have to do it pretty quickly, otherwise those bubbles would go, wouldn't they? They're there just for a split second. Well, it's exactly the same in granite. In granite, we've got these radio-polonium halos. Polonium being a, uh, a material, um, uh, uh, an element. And they've got a very, very, very short half-life. In other words, they decay very, very quickly. But the fact is, when you cut open granite, you find these halos as if they were literally frozen in a moment of time. They didn't have time to decay. And granite all around the world has got this. What it shows you is, without question, that that granite became what it is very quickly. It couldn't have cooled down over a long time, otherwise there'd be no radium polonium halos there. The person who discovered this, a chap by the name of Robert Gentry, when he published this, it was groundbreaking, but people straight away saw the problem, that it contradicted the man-made theory, and so he started to get shunned by the scientific community. It doesn't change the fact they're there. It's actually a great evidence, again, of the instantaneous creation of granite, of the earth, and also supports the whole idea that the earth is not as old as people would suggest. Verse 11, carry on. God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed. Now, we find that God does this and we have the seeds brought forth and everything else. This is on the third day. The first fruits of the earth on the third day. Isn't that interesting? When was it Jesus rose? As the first fruits of those that rise from the dead. That was the third day, wasn't it? We'll talk a bit more in a moment um, about some of the seeds. Um, but look at what we're told here. Number of times we're told, three times in these couple of verses, that that which God brings forth is after his kind, after his kind, after his kind. It's almost as if God is trying to get a message across. God says things will reproduce after their kind. Now, I want this to be a little bit uh, enjoyable for you this morning. I don't want it just to be heavy and lots of information. So I want you to be involved here. Okay? What are you going to get from an apple pip, please, anybody? Apple tree, yeah? Apples, yeah, absolutely. What about from an orange pip? What's going to come from that? Orange tree. You're very good at this. Have you, have you done this before? Grain of wheat. What are you likely to get from a grain of wheat? Wheat? Anybody got any problems with that? What are you going to get from a sunflower seed? Sunflower. Very, very, very good. I'm impressed. For a strawberry plant, what do you think you'll get? This is a tricky one. Strawberry. Yeah. From a banana tree, what are you likely to get from a banana tree? A monkey. Yeah, you're right. Now, Charles Darwin said, it's a truly wonderful fact that all animals and all plants throughout all the time and space should be related to each other. In other words, from banana trees, we eventually, some way down this evolutionary path and chain, could get to monkeys and man and so on. We're all related. Absolute nonsense. Every element of the world, we, we don't base things on that. Take garden centres. How many of you like when you get to nice weather going out and looking around garden centres? You know, and you see those packets of seeds, don't you? But you never see a packet with a, a warning saying seeds may produce a frog. The whole industry 
bases their reputation on the fact that what they've put on the picture, on the, on the, the cover of their, their seed packet, is what is going to be produced by the seeds inside. It's the same with, with every other, any, anybody that puts anything in a tin. And it's been bombarded by energy all the time for radiation and all sorts of things. So we've got energy, we've got all sorts of other mechanisms that potentially could change it from an evolutionary perspective. But when you open a tin of spaghetti, what do you find? Spaghetti. You see, the more you think about the evolutionary proposition, the more ridiculous it becomes. In every area of life, we know it doesn't work. The Bible says that things will produce after their kind. Just to mention, the Bible account and evolution are opposites. You may find some people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in evolution. Well, you can't hold both. You've got to choose which side you're on. You see, creation says death only came after Adam's sin. Evolution says death came before man. Creation account says the earth was created before the sun, but the evolution account says the sun was there before the earth. Creation says birds before land animals and so on. You can see the list. I'm not going to go through all of that now for the sake of time. The final one, though, is that creation says that man was created in God's image. Evolution says that God is made in man's image. We make God. We choose what God is. And then we get to this uh, yielding uh, tree, yielding fruit, and so on. Um, I just want to share this with you because I think this is incredible. And uh, just you realise just how wonderful our Creator is. You know, we look at trees. We get kind of kind of a bit blasé sometimes. We we kind of stamp on leaves, don't we? We without a thought. Um, and we think they're just simple little things. Well, if you look at the anatomy of a leaf, you've probably not done this before, I'm not sure. Um, if you look at a leaf, they are very complex. You've got this kind of skin layer on the top. Uh, you've then got, the, this is the epidermis obviously at the top. Uh, you've then got these other layers, this chloroplast that goes down, a kind of a spongy layer. I'm not sure whether that's a scientific term, but that's uh, what we've got there. But inside there, we've got these veins, xylem and folim. One is carrying the sugar and from the leaf down to the roots, one is carrying the water from the roof, root up to the leaf. Which came first? You need both of those to function. Now, photosynthesis, you may remember from school, it needs to build with light. And really what uh, we have with leaves is that they're, they're sugar factories producing millions of new glucose molecules per second. Most plants produce more glucose than they use. They store it as starch and carbohydrates and uh, so on in the roots and stems and leaves. Each year, photosynthesizing organisms produce about 170 billion metric tons of extra carbohydrates, about 30 metric tons for every person on Earth. Now, there's an incredible uh, reaction, uh, chemical reaction that takes place uh, within um, a leaf. We've got these um, two types of molecules that exist. Um, uh, I won't even bother going through what you actually... adenine. Yeah, oh, forget it. Right, NADP uh, and then adenine triphosphate as well, ADP, ATP. So these are the two molecules that we have. And then there's this, that's a, a light-dependent reaction. That reaction, as you'll see in a moment, depends on light energy. But there's another reaction that takes place in a leaf that's independent of that. It's not, it's not uh, dependent upon the light. And the light energy hitting the leaf causes the electrons in the chlorophyll in this surface to boost up and out of their orbit. The electrons instantly fall back into place, releasing resonance energy or vibrating energy as they go, all in millionths of a second. So the light hits the leaf and it causes this, this, uh, this effect of these molecules jumping up and down. Now, what I just find so incredible is all of these things work together. Um, you've got the, um, the hydrogen being added here. 
um, and again from the lights. So, and all of this is done to produce the glucose. Now, that's a simple leaf. We can spend a little bit longer going into more detail. It's not worth it for the point of this morning. That's a simple leaf. If a leaf is that complex, when we start to look at things like our bodies, the Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made, you start to see just how right the Bible is on these things. Let's uh, move on. God said, let there be lights in the firmament. And it's interesting because we now get what we refer to as the sun and the moon being created. We're told that they're for seasons, and of course they are. They govern the seasons on, on earth. We have the greater light and the lesser light, and so on. But the Bible doesn't refer to the sun and moon. Why? Well, because in the, t- the t- time this account is being recorded, the, ba- the Babylonian names of sun and moon hadn't yet been attributed to them. See, those names didn't come till later. It's another evidence, if you like, that the Bible predates those other ancient manuscripts. Otherwise, the writer here would have just put the names in inadvertently. So God puts the sun and moon in the firmament of heaven to give light, to rule over the day. And then we're told, um, God saw all that he made, it was good. And this is, brings us to the end of the fourth day. And then we get to the waters bringing forth abundantly. Every moving creature that has life. You start to look at some of the creatures um, that live in the oceans. Look at dolphins. Look at the sonar system uh, they have. Or sonar system, rather. Uh, they have an incredible way uh, of communicating and so on. And beautiful uh, creatures that are below uh, the, the level that we can naturally get to and swim. They're in such a deep part of the ocean. It's so dark, but they're such vivid colors. Why? What's the purpose of them evolving to that? When many of them are colorblind as well. They wouldn't appreciate it. Some of their prey would have seen it, of course, but it's so dark and there's no light. Again, we see also, note again, after their kind, after their kind. Just to mention as well, that it's on this day, this is the fifth day now that we're told that has life. This is the first day life appears on planet Earth. We've had the trees and the plants and all those kind of things, but they're not alive in that sense as we tend to think of life. The first thing we're told that has life is that which has blood. And that's very significant because... Blood, of course, is that which gives us life. It sustains life. The book of Leviticus will tell us that when we get there. So the evening and the morning are the fifth day. And then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind. Once again, we have these kinds, don't we? Uh, the cattle and creeping thing and the beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind. And every, every uh, living thing that creeps upon the earth after his kind. Once again, things never change from what they are. It's um, Ray Comfort recently um, produced a DVD, a video, um, Evolution versus God. He went to some top evolutionary scientists, asked them the question, can you give me any evidence of evolution? And one of them talks about stickleback, which are fish. And he said, okay, so what's the evidence? And he said, well, he said, we've got lots of different types now. They're kind of you know, variants. And he said, okay, what did they become? He said, well, fish. So they started as fish. They ended up as fish. There's no change. There's no change of kind. Often people talk about the, the finches on the Galapagos. What do they start off as? Birds, finches. What do they end up as? Birds, finches. There's no change. There's adaptation. That's fine. The Bible deals with that. It's not a problem. There's no change between kinds. And then we get to verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's God talking to? He's not talking to the angels. 
This is the plurality again of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. This is the mandate that God gives to man, to have this authority. Responsibility, yes, but authority also. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, male and female created he them. God made man in his own image. Body, soul and spirit is how we're made up. And it mirrors the fact that we have God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. But notice that last word of verse 27, created them. What about Eve? Let's just look at this text. If we look at again the Hebrew here, we've got uh, Bara, Elohim, Adam, uh, Teshlem, Teshlem, Elohim. So this is the, as we have it in the Hebrew, uh, then Bara, Eth, Zakar, Nechab, Bara, Eth. Now, what I'm trying to highlight here is that this is before Eve is created. And actually, it's not in conflict with what the text says, because if we were to transliterate this, what we have is, created out of nothing, God, Alpha, the Alpha and Omega. Notice again, we have another of these two untranslated letters for us, uh, Aleph and a Tau, and Alpha and Omega. So, created out of nothing, God, Alpha and Omega, that's who he is, man. In his resemblance, in his resemblance, God, created out of nothing, him. Male, female, created out of nothing, him. That's actually the translation we have. These two words here, um, here, this F here, referring to him, and exactly the same here. This, the only reason that letter at the end is different is in Hebrew, the letters at the end of a sentence have a different form. But it's exactly the same word. And what I want to try and illustrate and get across here is that when Adam was created, he was created as perfect male and female in one. It's not until a little bit later, and we'll get there in a moment, that God takes the woman part out of Adam. And that makes a whole much more sense of the whole issue of marriage. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Our bodies are just so incredible. Digestive system, circulatory system, respiratory system, sensory systems, eyes, ears, all these things that exist within our bodies, all dependent on each other. Which came first? How would that evolve? It doesn't make sense. This is design beyond anything we can imagine. You take the human brain. I mean, it's such a complex thing. There's 10 to the power of 10 nerve cells in the brain, each with, so we're told, 10 to the 4 or 10 to the 5 connecting fibers. So it's approaching 10 to the 15 connections. Now, to try and give you some idea of how many connections there are in your brain, if you imagine a tree, and let's say an average tree has got 50,000 leaves, if we then had 10,000 trees per square mile, and then if you had 2 million square miles, you'd end up with a forest effectively the size of America on that basis, and the number of leaves and the number of connections in your brain, all connected to other things, to each other. It's amazing. It's such a highly organized network of uniquely adaptive communication channels. If only 1% of the connections were specifically organized pathways, it would still represent a greater number of connections than the entire communications network on planet Earth. That's amazing. That's just in one human brain. Nobody would suggest, well, I, as you know, my day job work for BT, some people suggest that a lot of it's random and not particularly designed. Um, but nobody would suggest that the communications network we have in the world, around the world, came about by chance. Your brain is so much more complicated than that. God bless them. 
And the word there is eth again, so it's blessed him, um, because male and female, anyone one at this point. God said uh, to them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air. Um, and then we, we go on to this verse 29, that God gives every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth. This is the food that God gives for mankind. Let me just read you a couple of these things. We don't do that anymore in terms of eating seeds. We eat hamburger, French fries, Coke, and so on. God said, eat the fruit, the vegetables, the seeds. And when you eat the peach, so we should eat the seed. Inside there, there's a nut. And inside many seeds, there's a vitamin called vitamin B17. It's found in the seeds, not in the fruit. Um, and uh, people need that B17 in their diet. Those that take it, those that have a lot of that, don't seem to get cancer. Have you ever noticed a dog or a cat uh, get sick and go out and eat grass? You know, if you've got animals, you may may observe that. Um, certain kinds of grass contain B17. Do you know that wild animals don't seem to get cancer, but zoo animals seem to get it quite often? There was a tribe in India called the Hunza tribe. And when they were first discovered, um, before white people got to the area, the average age was 165. They built a highway to allow people to get in and out and connect the area. Uh, the lifespan has dropped off to the average age of 90. It's still obviously pretty old. Today it's still around 90. But the Hunza's favorite food is apricot seed. And it just so happens that they have a lot of B17 in them, more than anything else found in nature. Uh, the Hunza tribe have never had a case of cancer. The question sometimes asked, you know, can a vitamin cure cancer? Well... We know, of course, with sailors, we had the British sailors going back some time, that we had scurvy, uh, which was a real problem. Vitamin C deficiency was the cause. And after the cure was discovered, everybody started having limes. That's one of the reasons we got called limeys and so on. Um, and we eat those limes. That re- kind of almost eradicated that, that problem. Um, during the time, one million sailors died in the British Navy alone. What about bread? Again, we're talking about seeds and these kind of things. The Bible says that God gave the herb... For the service of man, bread strengthens man's heart. One of the verses in Proverbs tells us that. But bread uh, used to, sorry, bread used to um, strengthen our heart until they started messing about with it. Back in the old days, uh, they had to break bread fresh every day because it would go bad, it would go off. But nobody had heart attacks. You were more likely to get run over by an oddvark uh, than you would to die of a heart attack. But somebody discovered, and of course, the love of money is the root of all evil, that what was making the bread go bad was vitamin E and the lecithin. So they take those out of the bread, and now the bread lasts a long time, but we don't. They get more profit out of it now, because it will last longer. It's a simple formula. The whiter the bread, the quicker you're dead. If it will not go bad in a few days, there's probably nothing in it to go bad, which means there's nothing in it that's good for you either. Psalm 104, verse 15, again. So bread strengthens man's heart. Well, certainly it used to. You start to see that in all of these things, God has included in the world, natural world, the things that are good for us. I had a trip to the doctor the other day, and he was just talking about diet and things like that. And he was just saying how much I need to be eating green things. didn't particularly enjoy the conversation. But you realize it's all the things that God has made and instructed for us to eat. To every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, to everything that creeps upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And this is before sin has crept in. Everything was wonderful. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. So now man is created. God has finished his work of creation. The first day that man spends on earth is a day off. Isn't that good? 
God has that first day with me, just a day of rest to spend together. And then we carry on, because we have chapter breaks. Chapter breaks didn't come in until somewhere around about the 12th century or so. Uh, Stephen Langton was the, uh, uh, um, the individual from Canterbury that actually brought these things uh, in and brought the chapter breaks as we have them. Really, chapter 1 continues up to verse 3 of chapter 2 as we have it. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made and rested on the seventh day for all his work which he had made. God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because that in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. So we jump into chapter 2, and then we're told, these are the generations. We're starting something fresh now. This is like a review in some senses. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made, the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain. That's interesting. There was no rain at this point upon the earth. There was uh, not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth, and water the whole face of the ground. It doesn't rain until we get to Genesis chapter 6, and we get the flood. And that's why it was such an act of faith on Noah's part. Before this, there was a completely different system on the earth. We'll talk about it in a moment. And the Lord God formed the man, as we've been told, this is like a review, of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the breath of God, the Spirit of God. And now, verse 8 onwards... We get a, a kind of a break in the sense that so many people miss, and people talk about a contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's no contradiction because if you read the text, it's really clear. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And now that which we're going to look at are the things that take place in the garden. God puts man in the, in the garden out of the ground. God then causes everything to grow up before him. And there's a tree that's there, this tree of life. And also another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may have heard or come across of these equidistant letter sequences. It's where you take a letter, you jump forward X number of letters, you take another letter, and that will then spell a word. There's a number of those. We'll look at some more as we go through our study of the Bible. But in Genesis, from Genesis 1.29, going up to Genesis 2 verse 9, the verse we've just got to, under the text is encrypted every single tree that is found in the rest of the Bible. The chance of that happening randomly is impossible. Every tree. Some of them, the tamarisk tree, for example, is encrypted at two letter intervals. So you take the first letter, you miss the second, you take the next letter, you miss the second, and so on. Others are, are larger gaps. Some go backwards, some go different ways. But nevertheless, in that section, every tree that is mentioned in the rest of the Bible is encrypted. That's evidence of design. You see, what we're dealing with in the Bible is not a work of man. This is the work of God. And God has given us so many of these things to authenticate. This really is from him. We're told that this river went out of Eden, and it's kind of divided into these four heads, and we've given these various names. And we get names such as, you notice at the bottom here, Ethiopia. And we think, well, we know where Ethiopia is, but bear in mind, this is prior to the flood. And all that happens is after the flood, as people start to go out around the world from that point, some of the names that they were familiar with get carried forward and they reuse some of those names. We have, again, some rivers. Verse 15 says that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The Garden of Eden is fascinating. You see, at this point, we have what would probably be best referred to as the original greenhouse. The world gets very concerned about the greenhouse effect and so on. But the Bible, we've already seen this idea of this uh, the waters being separated, the waters above from the waters below. 
And what the Bible reveals to us is there was once a water canopy surrounding the earth. Now, that being the case, the incredible thing is that it would regulate the temperature on earth, and we'd have pretty much near a tropical climate everywhere. There would be an increase in air pressure, more oxygen and more carbon dioxide as well. It would also shield the earth from solar radiation. It would naturally protect life on earth, leading to greater lifespans and so on. I'll talk about some of these things in a bit more detail. But we do know that they found coal seams at the South Pole. So clearly, although it's cold now, at one time there was vegetation, there was trees growing there. Frozen leaves at the poles as well have been found. Mammoths found with undigested tropical vegetation in their stomachs. We tend to think of mammoths as creatures that live in very cold places, and yet they had a tropical diet. They found trapped in amber, which is petrified tree sap, they found insects, the oxygen content has been double that, 50% more than normal. That would have a tremendous impact on life on Earth. Things would grow bigger, stronger, fitter, healthier. One of the theories about how the dinosaurs died out was that there was a lack of oxygen. Now that actually is probably one of the most logical theories that's been put forward. We know that the Pachycephalus, some people refer to it as a Brontosaurus, had the nostrils about the same size as those of a horse. If it was breathing in today's earth, every time it tried to breathe in, it would burn its head through the friction of trying to take in enough air for it to survive. But if the air pressure and the oxygen content was much greater, that wouldn't be a problem. In fact, it's the only way you can explain how a creature like that could have survived. So that's probably what happened to the poor old dinosaurs. Time magazine, 1987, actually said the Earth's atmosphere contained about 50% more oxygen than it does today. This isn't fringe stuff. This is something that people that have studied it are quite well aware of. Under double atmospheric pressure, the plasma will become uh, oxygen saturated. That has lots of benefits. Some of you may have heard of hyperbaric chambers. Just let me read this to you. Several English football teams used hyperbaric oxygen therapy to treat their players this year, apparently with excellent results. In one case, an athlete with ligament damage reduced recovery time by 33% with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. A second player receiving hyperbaric oxygen therapy recovered in only four days, even though doctors have predicted a three-week layoff. You see, that extra oxygen allows our bodies to heal quicker. A lot of countries actually use this uh, in quite a big way. So, this original greenhouse would have produced, and we've got fossilized moss three foot deep. Fossils of asparagus 40 feet high. 50 foot horsetail reeds have been fossilized and found. Ferns over 50 foot tall. Fossil cattails 60 foot long found in sedimentary rock. When you look at that, you see kind of the scale that we're looking at of some of these things that we're familiar with today, but they don't grow to those kind of sizes. But in the fossil record, we have evidence that the earth was once very different. There was a chap by the name of Dr. Moray. He decided he was going to grow some cherry tomato plants but under double air pressure. One grew to the height of 16 foot tall and produced 907 tomatoes. And you can see they are rather large cherry tomatoes. He's cupping them with both hands there. University of Nebraska Museum, they've got a rhinoceros that's 18 foot tall. We've got dragonflies found with three feet wingspans. Cockroaches over 18 inches Long have been found in the fossil record. I fancy meeting those, really. A fossil centipede, 8.5 feet long, has been found. We don't hear about this in the news, do we? They find some drawing somewhere that some artist did of somebody that didn't exist, and all of a sudden it's news. But Fossils of grasshoppers over two feet long also have been found. 
A donkey was excavated near Lubbock, Texas, that was nine feet high at the shoulder. Fossil buffalo horns have been found with a 12-foot span. Fossils of beavers over eight feet tall have been found. I mean, they wouldn't have any trouble building their dams, would they? The biggest petrosaur flying over the inland sea is this uh, petranodon. Like all reptiles, it grows throughout its life. That was from Holt Earth Science in 1991. So reptiles grow. If you were given a reptile a perfect environment, lots more oxygen, food that was good for it, and it was going to grow throughout its life and it was going to live a lot longer, how big would those reptiles get? And what would they look like? That isn't a dinosaur. It was just a little reptile at a place down in Kent that I took the picture of it. But if that grew and grew and grew, so many of the, the, the things that we find, if you grew, if, you, they, if they were allowed to grow and get larger, they would fall very quite comfortably into the category, category that we refer to as dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were just reptiles after all. The other effect, of course, of this greenhouse is that it would protect us from radiation. Radiation, of course, uh, radiologists, of course, have such a negative outlook on life, don't they? Have you ever noticed that? We, we go through these things. Have you ever been for an x-ray? Um, and somebody will put on this kind of big coat and they'll go stand inside a room and you say, is it safe? And they say, yeah, it's fine for me. <laughs> but if we have too much radiation, it's bad for us. And with a water canopy protecting the earth, there will be no problems, or not the problems that we associate today. And if you look at the average ages before the flood, they were significantly longer. The average age was 912 years. People look at that and they think, that's impossible. But you combine all of these factors, the diet, the lack of radiation, the harmful radiation getting through, the oxygen, all these things. The pre-flood world would have been very, very different. Again, more oxygen would have been fun just to breathe. You know, people would have been grown taller, been much fitter. There would have been a stable climate, no cold winters. This water canopy acting as a radiation shield, as I said, would increase the ages and no junk food. Again, people eating the food that God had created. So, getting back to what we were just a moment ago, the Lord then commands uh, the man saying, out of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Where's Eve? She hasn't been created yet. God is giving this command to Adam. It's his responsibility to teach his wife. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. If any of you know a man that lives alone, you can probably concur with that. I will make him a helpmeet for him. This was God's intention. And of course, what God is going to do here is take the woman part out of man. That help meets, as we have it in the King James, just simply means a helper suitable. And we find that marriage all comes back and is related to this point quoted by Jesus himself. Um, the basis of marriage is from this point. Marriage was to be heterosexual, monogamous, and for life. Ephesians talks about the mystical purpose of marriage because even in marriage, God was creating a model which would ultimately speak of him and his church, his bride. Matthew 19, verse 4, he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning, made them male and female? And Jesus goes on to say, So that that which God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, God made 
man and woman at the beginning. No room for an evolutionary thing. And actually, you still got... People talk about, oh, do you believe in Adam and Eve? Well, what do you believe? Where did your first man and your first woman come from? And how did your first man and your first woman evolve at the same time? And in the same place? And with the same beneficial mutations so that they can reproduce? Because that's how evolution would have to work. You see, when you think about evolution and that process that we're told we should believe... You've got to double it because you've got to do it for a man and a woman. All the links in that chain, randomly, have got to happen twice. That's like playing a game with, with two dice. You have two people playing, and every time you both roll the same numbers, every single time. Do you think it could happen? Of course it couldn't. Jesus takes Genesis literally, and we should do the same. Try and explain the origin of the sexes without Genesis. Why even would we have male and female? Just randomly. There's no logic in that. So again, God now brings out of the ground, and this is in the Garden of Eden, because God has created all the animals already, but now in the garden, in front of Adam's eyes, God brings out of the ground all of the creatures, so that Adam can name them. But why did he do this? Well, it's so that Adam is left in no doubt that God is creator. See, Adam wasn't there when God made the, the animals, the fish, the, and the birds, and so on. But God now does it in front of him. Not a new set, but just one of every kind, or the, 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 the male and the female. God brings them so that Adam can see them, and Adam will name them. And this is a, a lesson as well, because Adam realizes that he doesn't have. Because you're seeing Mr. and Mrs. Donkey, Mr. and Mrs. Camel, Mr. and Mrs. Hippo. And he doesn't find anybody that's suitable. He realizes he's not Mr. and Mrs. He is in a sense because, as I said already, God had made Adam originally, man, man and female. So what then we read? God had caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Because he went, whoa, man. So, Because she was taken out of man, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Because they've been joined back together, you see. God had separated the woman apart from man, and the intention was they come back together as one flesh. Marriage is a beautiful thing. And we're told they were both naked. The man and his wife, they were not ashamed. There was no sin in the world to distort nakedness at this point. You see, man had a duty though. Because Adam, not Eve, as we've mentioned, was given the warning about the tree. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they were told not to eat of. Eve did not witness the creative acts of God. And God clearly holds man responsible for his family. Eve had not been properly taught the word of God because when she tries to quote it, she misquotes it. And throughout scripture is reiterated that a man's responsibility is to teach his family concerning the things of God. And this brings us to chapter 3, which many commentators refer to as the seed plot of the Bible. Now as we go through the Bible, we won't spend as long looking at individual texts and chapters and so on. What we do see here though, is... In a sense, the whole plan starts to make sense. God's intention right from the start. Because all of a sudden now we find that the serpent comes onto the scene. Satan manifesting himself in this form of the serpent. More subtle than any beast of the field. He says to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? 
See, she starts with a little subtle kind of lie. The serpent is the knackish, the shining one. And of course, we're told that Adam was made in the image of God. In the book of Ezekiel, we're told that Lucifer was the anointed cherub. Satan was the one who had this top position. First Timothy, we'll look in a moment, we're told that Satan's sin was pride. Isaiah tells us Satan wanted to be like God. All of this was an attempt on Satan's part to try and usurp man because suddenly God had made man in his image. The word subtle there is wise, full of wisdom, prudent. Satan goes for the weak part of our flesh, always in terms of temptation. He goes for somewhere where we're weak. And Eve hadn't had that teaching directly from God. She'd relied on what she'd been told by Adam. And Satan seeks to exploit a lack of understanding of God's word. Always. If we don't understand God's word, we leave ourselves open to deception. Satan's principal attack is always to make us doubt God's word as well. And Satan will call into question God's character. His response says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Well, that's not what God has said. He didn't say anything about touching it, lest you die. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Revelation 22, warns about adding to God's words. Maybe there's a lack of humility here. Why didn't you go and get Adam? Why did she try and deal with this herself? Maybe she trusted Satan. You see, we have this image of Satan with this kind of horns and pitchfork. We see, we're told again, we'll see in a moment, but Ezekiel tells us that Satan was beautiful. He was a light bearer. He was given this incredibly privileged position of walking to and fro on the th- in front of the throne of God. But now, he's jealous. God has created something that's better than him in a sense, that has a higher position, something that's created in the likeness of God. And so Satan deceives her and says, you, shall, you, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes are going to be opened. You'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. So the first thing Satan does is to cause to doubt God's word. And then this bold, outright lie to cause uncertainty. Again, it would have been good to go and get out of it at that point. We should have accountability. It's helpful. And then this dangling the carrot, this, you know, you could have this. You know, as a Christian, as somebody who puts your trust in God, Satan will come to you and challenge you. As a Christian, you can't do that, really. You can't do it. You're missing out. You know, God just doesn't want you to have fun. Of course, the truth is very different. The truth is, I don't need to experience fill in the blank to have a full life. In fact, what I need to have a full life is to be obedient to God because he created me. By the way, we can't control sin. We may think we can, but we can't. In Romans, we're told, Know you that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey. In other words, we are all serving someone. We're either serving God, or effectively we're serving God's enemy. Because we're either following God, following God's plan for our lives, or we're being deceived into another path. And Paul asked the question, what fruit did you have in those things of where you're of you are now ashamed? I've never met a Christian who said, you know, I really miss going out and getting drunk, or I really miss going out and having an immoral lifestyle. I meet Christians all the time who say, I'm so glad God saved me from those things. 
What fruit was there? There wasn't any fruit. It didn't help us. It didn't bless our lives. It just caused pain. So we're told that Eve looks at the tree. She sees that it's good. And it's pleasant to the eyes. A tree to be desired, to make one wise. And she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. It's interesting that you can ask the question, at what point did Eve sin? Is it the moment she bit into that fruit? And by the way, it's not an apple, okay? People get uh, quite hung up on that. It wasn't an apple. We know that because we still have apples. This fruit is barred from now on, so we don't have access to it. It wasn't when Eve bit into it. Was it maybe when she reached out her arm to take it? No. It was the moment she decided in her heart that she was going to do it. That is the point that she rebelled against God. And this is why Jesus talks about the thoughts of our heart being as bad as, Jesus uses hatred or um, lust, and says it's as bad as murder or adultery. And we kind of scared and think, well, it's not as bad. No, it is to God because it's the thoughts of the heart. That's where it starts. That's where our rebellion against God begins. John's first letter, 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, I'm given three things now, the lust of the flesh. Well, that fruit must have tasted great. The lust of the eyes, it looked good. And the pride of life, why should I do what God has said? All of that is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. Remember we said earlier, there's material things, they won't last. And the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. And then this tragic situation. Verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened. They suddenly lost that innocence that they had. And they knew that they were naked. And so they start the first religion. They try to, by their efforts, cover up their sin. They sew these fig leaves together and make themselves aprons. And that's exactly what it is. It's a religious attempt. It's trying to cover over what we've done to make us feel better about ourselves. And that is what religion really is. There's a number of fig leaves that we encounter. Going to church can be a fig leaf. Well, I go to church. As if that kind of makes us okay. Well, I, I do religious exercises, you know, I, I, you know, go to a Bible study or a prayer meeting. That is not in itself the solution. Good works. This chap I've been to at work was telling me he does lots of good things. Great. That's just fig leaves. That's just our attempt to cover over the fact that we are sinful. What we need is somebody that can wash all of that away and cleanse us from our sin. Just very quick then, this whole issue of when did Satan fall, there's all sorts of theories that are banded about. Ezekiel 28, if you want to make mention or make note of it, is gives us the, the when did Satan fall, and Isaiah 14 is the why. I'm not going to read all of this through, but in Ezekiel 28... This is when we're told here, notice what we're told, Thou has been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, and we're given this wonderful description. And the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that was created. Okay, just read this again, Thus says the Lord God, you seal up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
Satan, whilst he was in the garden, at one point was perfect. He hadn't fallen, he hadn't rebelled. But suddenly he looks at this creation that God has completed, and then man... I mean, Satan probably was looking at God creating the, the earth and seeing the animals and thinking, this is going to be mine, this is lovely. And seeing all of these things being put together and thinking, I'm going to be the Lord and the ruler over all of this. And suddenly on day six, God creates man in his image. And Satan wasn't created in God's image. And notice here, Thou was perfect in all thy ways, from the day you were created until, that's the big until, until iniquity was found in thee. This thought of pride in Satan's heart. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground and lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. When we turn to Isaiah, we start to see what was going on in his heart. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, which you'd weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's a reference to the angelic realm. I'm going to be above them all. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the, cloud, the heights of the clouds. And then this last one. I will be like the most high. Adam had been made like the Most High. And Satan says, I want that. I want that position. I want to be like the Most High. First Timothy 3.6 says, when in regards to appointing those of positions of authority within a church, it says that it shouldn't be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. First Peter talks about those who are humble. says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And probably the reason it's given such strong language there is because everybody that is proud in their heart, God just sees a little bit of a reflection of what Satan was like. And that pride that Satan have of wanting that position. As a result of this, this war begins between Satan and mankind. Before we conclude on that subject, just to mention something else, Adam is this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Adam was a direct creation of God. He's given the title Son of God. Jesus not being created, but is obviously the Son of God. We're told that Adam in 1 Timothy 2.14 wasn't deceived that means that Adam ate of that fruit willingly and knowingly. Romans speaks of Adam as a figure of him who was to come. Because Adam knew that if Eve, after eating of that fruit, was to be saved, the only way would be if he joined her in a predicament, they had offspring, eventually, through that offspring that the Lord would bring the Messiah, the promised one, to be a kinsman, somebody of the family line, to purchase back. And so Adam becomes this incredible picture of giving up his own life to save his bride. And Christ did exactly the same. He left the majesty glory of heaven to come to this earth, to live a life despised, rejected, to die for his bride, 
The incredible thing is those who put their trust in Jesus Christ have the privilege of being part of the bride of Christ. Genesis 3 verses 8 through 10 to speak of this time when the Lord goes out walking in the garden and Adam, where are you? And they hide. Oh, what a sad state. Up until this point, they've been able to walk together in fellowship and harmony. Now, Adam is fearful. He's hiding from his creator. He says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Psalm 139 reminds us, where can I go to flee from God? It's a little bit like the game you play with children. I, I, we, we play it sometimes with Amisa at home. And you know how it is when you're, when you're three. If you put your hand over your eyes, nobody can see you. We laugh because we know it's foolish, really. But, of course, Adam was doing just the same kind of thing. How can you hide from God? But so many of us, even maybe after today, will go home and we'll try and hide from God. You can't. God challenges Adam and says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? And Adam says, uh, It's her fault. God turns to the woman and she says, It was the snake's fault. You see, the moment we're in this predicament, all we do is try and blame somebody else for our own sin. When we come to that place of realizing that we are guilty before a holy God, that's when we start to find a solution to the problem. We then find this great promise in Genesis 3.15 where God promises to send a seed, offspring of the woman. And we're told that there's going to be this battle, there's going to be this war. He shall crush thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan did bruise Jesus' heel at the crucifixion. But Jesus did eventually crush his head. We're going to find as we go through the Bible, Satan tries repeatedly to wipe out the possibility that the Saviour could come. So many things. We'll go through these as we go through the text. Old Testament, New Testament, it carries on. There's a curse that's put upon the woman in regard to the pain she'll experience in childbirth. A curse is put upon the man in regard to having to labor through the thread of his brow. But Jesus, we find in Galatians, becomes a curse for us. He undoes all the damage that was done in the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was where man's problems began. The tree, as it were, on Calvary's hill was where man's problems were solved. The Garden of Eden was where the battle of will was conceded. The Garden of Gethsemane is the place where the battle of will was won. We find that God then instigates the first sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. These two innocent animals are shed, their blood is shed, and their skins are given to Adam and Eve. And this becomes a pattern that will then follow throughout the whole Testament, that these animals' blood is shed, because God had said that if you sin, the punishment is death, you'll die. And by doing that, God had made the way that if another's blood would be shed in your place, atonement would be made. And this was what God instigates at this point. God then bars the way to the tree of life to stop man getting to... If Adam were to have eaten of the tree of life at this point, he would forever have remained in that state. But by dying, God has made a way through death 
for someone to die in his place and thus pay for his sin. And then, to conclude, we're told that as man is driven out from the garden, God places there these cherubims, this flaming sword, which we're told to guard the way. It's interesting in the text, the word we have placed there, actually 89 other times in the Bible is translated as dwelt. In one of the um, translations, the Jerusalem Targum, it says, God dwelt east of the Garden of Eden, between the cherubim. And there are many that think that this is if you like, the mercy seat that we find later with the Ark of the, the Testimony. These two cherubim, God dwelling in their midst to guard the way. And it seems to be the, the, the case that Adam would have gone back to this place to offer his sacrifice. You know, you can imagine later his sons, Cain and Abel, and talking to Eve and saying, you know, why is dad so miserable? He's the most miserable man in the whole world. And Eve saying to the boys, just leave that alone for now. Dad remembers what it was like back in the garden. And as Adam would go off with a lamb, maybe sometime later come back with that look of contentment as that blood of that innocent lamb had been shed, knowing that it was all pointing to one who would come. That's a picture of the the rendition of the Ark of the Covenant, these two cherubim that we see there, again, these two cherubim were there to guard the way of the life. And so, this scarlet thread, as some refer to it, begins. From this seed of the woman now, the rest of the Bible will start to make sense. As we get the call of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, all starting to narrow down, and we'll explain more as we go forward. The dynasty of David, eventually the birth in Bethlehem of Mary through virgin to another tree in another garden. Next session, we're going to see that Satan will launch a full-scale attack. We'll see the first murder and a direct attempt to stop a descendant of Eve being the one through whom Satan would eventually be destroyed. Satan then launches a second assault. We see the wickedness goes off the scale on the earth and God intervenes to save humanity. And then Satan will launch a third assault, this three-pronged attack, and we'll look at that next time. But God regains the initiative, as it were, and unveils his recovery plan. It's just an incredible, dramatic series of events that we see. So the Old Testament is going to become, as we see, the account of a nation through whom the Lord will bring the Saviour. The New Testament is the account of a man. The creator became a man. His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us and is alive now. Our most exalted privilege is to know him, and that is what the Bible is all about. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the breadth, the depth, the height, the length. Lord, it's just breathtaking. Help us to understand these things. Impress them upon our hearts, we pray. Father, be with us as we go from here this day. Help us to be mindful that we still have an adversary that would seek to destroy us, to deceive us, to cause us to doubt your word. But Lord, help us to be also mindful that you've given us your word, that we might have the answers to the questions. We might have peace, encouragement and hope. Father, guide us and lead us, we pray that we may grow in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.